You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. And welcome to episode 13 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm here with my fabulous friend, Alison Tate. Al, how are you today? I'm extremely well. In fact, I'm fabulous, Val, (laughs) because clearly I am. (laughs) There you are. What have you been up to this week? Uh, Well, this week I'm in knee-deep in copy editing my uh, first book for their children's series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. Um, And the copy edit is, of course, the line edit where everybody looks at every single word and decides whether or not that's correct and we move the apostrophes and we move the commas and mm. um, and that sort of thing. So it's been quite interesting. I, I, um, I've I always find it confronting. Editing is always confronting for an author because you always think your work is perfect and then it, you find out it's not. <laughs> um, so that's a little bit disappointing in, from that level. But I also find it really, really interesting to see what the manuscript looks like through someone else's eyes mm. and what you think has been completely explained, I mean, seriously, why are they not getting this, um, is often not as, is you know, can be ambiguous and, and it's a matter of, okay, well, how do I reword this so that it's absolutely clear mm. to everyone who's reading it? So, yeah, so that's what I've been doing. And what about you? But, but, but before we move on to me, on the, for people who don't necessarily know and aren't familiar with copy editing, if they're looking at the apostrophes and the commas and that sort of thing, are they actually saying, hey, this sentence structure should be completely different because I don't understand what you're saying? Um, sometimes, sometimes it's stylistic, like in the sense that each book will have a style um, that will be set by the publisher. So in some, in some cases, I remember I wrote a non-fiction book a few years ago, and it was the first nonfiction book that I'd ever done. And I hadn't realised that the house style for manuscripts was to use single quotes instead of doubles. Right. So, so when I got my manuscript back and it was all single quotes where I thought there should be doubles, you know, I laboriously went through and changed them all and then they told me that it was house style and I went, <laughs> oh. So sometimes it's a stylistic thing, but sometimes it's just a simple fact of, you know, when you're writing, I think you can, you can get carried away and, I mean, obviously all of my apostrophes are in the right place, Val, so let's not even of go there with that discussion. Of course. But it's things like I have a, I do have an, a sort of an addiction to the ellipsis. So I will put oh. in the dot, dot, dot sometimes where it's completely unnecessary or it should yep. be a dash or it should be. Um, so there's that kind of stuff. But there's also things like there's one particular character in my in my book that um, has a quite specific way of talking mm. and it's it's a matter of consistency with that. Like it's like would would this character use that word? And it makes me rethink Perhaps maybe that character wouldn't. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's someone else reading your work and going, well, I think this could be clearer. And, I, you know, really at the end of the day we should just be cheering that someone cares enough to do that. But it's mm. also, you know, you sort of just feel that slight little, oh, what do you mean <laughs> it's not exactly correct, you know. So, um, yeah, it's a funny thing. Getting used to being edited, I think, is a is a wonderful skill for any author. And yeah. um, I, I'm starting to get the hang of it. But, yeah, I do 
you know, at least they do it in pencil now. It's not in red pen like it was <laughs> at school. So you don't, you don't feel quite as horrified. Yeah. I think but what people, about you? well, I think a lot of people are scared of the editing process because, I mean, you and I are used to it because we're used to being edited, even, you know, as journalists. That's um, right. But uh, a lot of people are scared of the editing process. I remember that you and I used to sit next to certain people who used to yes. um, react very badly uh, yes. when, you know, a word was changed or a comma was added. And I think that most people, if you're being edited by a good editor, it is such a blessing. It, you, you should should welcome as much red pen as possible because that is the way you're going to learn by seeing what the changes are and figuring out why those changes were made. But I've sort of moved on to (laughs) (laughs) a few soapboxy things. But yes, this week, oh, okay. This week has been quite busy because regular listeners will know that uh, we have been recruiting at the Australian Writers' Centre and we've, you know, finally got um, some fabulous new staff and I actually can't wait for them to to get started because it's going to be awesome and I'm sure that um, people will discover who they are over the course of the next few weeks. Um, but So we've been busy really, you know, organising the welcome mat for them. Oh, great. <laughs> Rolling out the red carpet. Exactly, exactly. But let's see what's been going on in the world of writing, publishing and blogging this week. Um, well, one of the things I discovered was an interesting link uh, call, about authors who have disowned their books. So it's a list of various, you know, very well-known authors who have come out and basically said that they this particular book has sucked or they really didn't like it or they wish they hadn't written it. They probably didn't say their book sucked but you know (laughs) they were thinking that (laughs) exactly and one of them is actually Ian Fleming who um you know famous author of all the James Bond novels and in particular he didn't uh like the book The Spy Who Loved Me um and it's an interesting reason why he wrote the book because basically in response to caution his readers against making Bond too much of a hero because as we know Bond is a bit of a playboy he's a bit misogynistic and he doesn't treat women that fabulously mm-hmm. um, and he was shocked when he discovered that some of his Bond novels were being taught in schools so as a bit of an experiment he um wrote uh, The Spy Who Loved Me with Bond, uh, you know, as a secondary character. And uh, it didn't do well at all. It got very negative reviews. His publisher wasn't happy. And, you know, he's tried to keep the book out of print since. But, you know, anyway, that's uh, that's one from Ian Fleming. But another interesting one um, is actually <clears throat> from um, Stephen King. And Stephen King basically says that his book, um, Rage, which he wrote in 1977 under the pseudonym Richard Buckman, uh, well, it's about a high school student who shoots his algebra teacher and holds his class hostage. So Stephen King has since repudiated that novel, particularly after the 1997 uh, a, a high school shooting in the States where a student killed three classmates and injured five, he tried to keep that book out of print, you know, for, well, really obvious reasons kind of thing. And um, one more of note is um, Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange, which he has also said a novel I am prepared to repudiate. There is that word again. Um, and he basically says that uh, he's frustrated that that is the one work that he is forever connected with, you know, because, of course, there was the famous movie. Um, and he claimed that he only wrote that book in three weeks and he, you know, wishes that he 
knew about other things. Um, people knew about other books of his, um, and he says that he's he'll be forever represented by the films, you know, glorification of sex and violence, which will pursue me until I die. He said. Ooh. So, yes, but it, I will put the link in the show notes. But that is certainly that was I found that quite interesting. But it because you know we all write things that we don't necessarily in in our past because we've had to pay the bills sometimes, <laughs> and yes. that we don't necessarily want to be known for. Um, but uh, do you have any of those skeletons in the closet, Alison? Oh, I don't think so at this <laughs> stage of proceedings. Who knows? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you just uh, nobody knows what's going to to take off and what's not. And 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 you know, to write a book in three weeks that has had the longevity of a Clockwork Orange, whether mm. it be for the film or not. I mean. I, I don't know. I, I guess it's that whole situation where you always think you can do better as a writer and mm. you want your best work to be what people know you for. Mm. And sometimes maybe that's not always the case because, you know, some other piece of work catches the imagination. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's – I don't think any writer is ever fully satisfied with anything that they write. Of I mean, I, I don't know anyone who, who goes, oh, that was perfect, mm-hmm. um, except me, of course, yeah. <laughs> before I get edited <laughs> and then afterwards I think maybe not um but no I I think that you know there's there's always that notion that maybe the idea that you had um was a lot better than the actual um the actual writing of that idea and yeah. there's, there's that notion of oh if I'd gone back maybe I could have done de- could have done it better I don't know but um, I would like to have such problems in many yeah. ways. <laughs> but even though you're absolutely right, I don't think any writer thinks that anything's perfect and it can, it can always be improved. There are sometimes, particularly, you know, when maybe not as a book because it's such a long process, but even, you know, in the world of journalism where the final product is not what you expected because it's gone through the hands of several people. Have you ever been in a situation where you've actually said, Look, I've, uh, I, you know, you have every right since you're my editor to do what you've done, but I want my name offered. Yes, ah. I have had that experience. I've had that experience on a couple of occasions. Um, as you said, we, we, I was going to add before when we were discussing this, like when you're in the hands of a good editor or a mm. good sub-editor, like it, you really can see that that improves your work. But sometimes, um, for whatever reason, you may find yourselves yourself in the hands of an editor who perhaps doesn't quite understand uh, look, I, I think the biggest problem I always find is um, the flattening, complete and utter, and utter flattening of the voice of an article mm. um, can be incredibly detrimental to mm. the way the story turns out. Mm. Um, so there have been a couple of instances where it's just been mucked around with so much that I can't even see myself in it anymore mm. um, for whatever reason. And so I just, you know, and if I'm really, really unhappy with that, I just go, look, just you can print it, but mm. take my name of it. Mm. Um, and also sometimes I think editors, the, what they what they want from a story is not always there. Mm. Mm. And so they'll put it in. Yeah. And in that instance, I will also walk away from it because I do believe that, you know, I, I, I believe as an, as a writer, I have a, a serious responsibility to the people who are, who I've interviewed for my stories. Mm. And I try very, very hard to protect those people as well, because I think a lot of people, when you interview them, they don't always understand exactly what it's going to look like. in Oh, print. yeah. And I believe as a, as a writer, it's my responsibility to, 
um, to look after those people to a degree. And I have had instances where I've had editors who they, they want more sensationalism than I'm necessarily prepared to give. Yep. And so I will, you know, walk away from that as well. Sure. I, I've been in one situation where it, it wasn't that I, that I was edited badly or edited sort of incorrectly in a sense, but and I didn't have the opportunity to take my name off it, but I remember um, getting the glossy magazine and opening it and reading my story and and kind of scratching my head going, this just doesn't make sense and the magazine shall remain nameless. However, what I realized, it took me so a few hours to kind of piece it together is this was in the days of faxing and I had faxed the story in and obviously the pages arrived in, you know, not the right order. <gasps> oh, you're joking. And they just reprinted the story. In those page, in the order in which the pages arrived. <laughs> oh, you are kidding me! How does that even happen? happen? That's oh. hilarious. I, and I'm a stickler for numbering my pages, so God knows what happened at the other end. But oh my God, it was just terrible. <laughs> oh my Lord, that's hilarious. <laughs> yes. Oh my Lord. Anyway, what else has been happening in the world this week? Well, speaking of writers who who may. Um, who may regret perhaps their, <laughs> their book mm-hmm. or not. We shall see. Mm-hmm. Um, Scarlett Johansson is currently suing the author of a novel that she says stole her image, mm-hmm. which I find absolutely fascinating. So the book in question is a, is a French novel by Grégoire Delacourt, and I'm not even going to attempt to give you the name in, in French because my French is really, really not very good. Well, but it's called... Delacourt, really, I know, look really at me. I, I think that's from... <laughs> could be like a Game of Thrones name or something, so I've gone with that. So um, it's called The First Thing We Look At, and she, Scarlett Johansson, is saying that it violates her privacy and constitutes a fraudulent and illicit use of her name, her fame, and her image for commercial gain. <laughs> so I saw that and I thought, goodness gracious me, I must go through and read this story. And I was expecting that there would be Scarlet on the cover or mm. you know, something like that. But it turns out that the, the novel is about a woman who bears a striking resemblance to Scarlett Johansson mm. and the effect that this has on her life. <laughs> so I'm going to follow this with great interest because she's suing him for 50,000 euro, yeah. uh, the author and the publisher of this novel for a character who closely resembles her. And I find this really interesting because I think it does have in some ways ramifications for um, for authors. Um, are we never to mention famous people ever mm. in books? Are we – I mean, I don't know. I mean, what do you think about something like this? I think it's insane. <laughs> I think she's nuts. That's insane because it's not about Scarlett Johansson. The protagonist is a woman who happens to look like Scarlett Johansson. And, I mean, no doubt that this, you know, action, this legal action is bringing way more publicity than this book would have ever received. I'm you know. hoping it sells a million copies yeah, of Yeah. So I really am. It, that's crazy. Sometimes you do wonder whether um, some, you know, high-profile people like Scarlett Johansson are getting the right advice here. It's just nuts because, you know, it's 50,000 euros. It's 14, I don't know what that is. It's 41,000 pounds according mm. to this, which really to someone like Scarlett is also a drop in the ocean. So, it's a bit strange, really. <laughs> well, it is interesting. And and the author, Mr. Delacourt, Gregoire, said mm. that um, 
his his response was that he was speechless about the whole thing. <laughs> and he said, I thought she'd get in contact to ask me to go for a coffee with her. <laughs> I didn't write a novel about celebrity. I wrote a real love story and an homage to feminine beauty, especially interior beauty, which, you know, it's really interesting how your intentions can be one thing. Um, and he also said, you know, if an author can no longer mention the things that surround us, a brand of beer, a monument, an yes. actor, it's going to be complicated to produce fiction. And, and that's very, very true. So, you know, again, we watch with interest to see what happens. Um, oh. I'm hoping there'll be a follow-up story. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if Robert De Niro had sued Banana Rama for, you know, Robert De Niro's waiting, talking Italian. It's, it's insane. Oh, the world would have been a lesser place, wouldn't it? Oh. Well, also in the uh, world of, um, well, magazines really this week, um, Australian Gourmet Traveller, you know, the fabulous food porn magazine, uh, and Harvey Norman have partnered to uh, – bring together, well, have partnered to create the Gourmet Institute. Now, what the Gourmet Institute is, is in-store masterclasses, you know, within Harvey Norman, basically. Um, but I thought it was interesting, not because I'm remotely interested in cooking, I was say, <laughs> <laughs> but because I think that we're going to see a lot more of these things where Australian Gourmet Traveller, this, you know, the masthead, which essentially made its um, revenue from advertising and, of course, subscriptions and newsagent sales, uh, is a brand. So, but with all this talk of print, you know, circulation declining and revenues shrinking, they need, they're still really strong brands, but they need to find other ways to, uh, you know, make money, whether that is through strategic partnerships or teaching people stuff or whatever. So I reckon we're going to see a lot more magazine mastheads venture out into other revenue raising models that obviously aren't just creating content. But, well, you know, it, makes, related. it does make perfect, perfect sense too because they are very credible brands. Very. Like the Australian Women's Weekly, you oh. know, if those test kitchen staff went out and did masterclasses, yeah. people would be knocking the door down because, you know, I mean, I know that you don't cook much, <laughs> but I do and I can tell you that those recipes do not fail. Mm. Whereas there are others that I have, you know, other names that I could mention that I won't mm. that, that do fail on a regular basis and you kind of mm. think, well, you know, if you're going to make something, you want to be able to just knock it out straight away, you know. Mm. And um, so, yeah, they are credible brands and they, they, I think, have a lot to offer and, as you say, they need to look for new ways to do it. Mm. Yeah, I guess I never believed it. I mean, I believed the test kitchen of the Australian Women's Weekly because, you know, they were in the same building as us yes. um, way back when. But I also remember going to, back in the days before Donna Hay was even remotely famous, going to a, you know, she styled a shoot or something for some magazine, for some shoot that I was, you know, involved in. And seeing the tips and tricks of making food look beautiful but then being unable to eat the food afterwards because it'd been sprayed with chemicals or, I know, it's you a know, disappointing thing. or It's a disappointing thing. I know the, it's, that's the travel. The food styling is a whole different world. Mm. So what else is happening? Well, um, I, we were looking at, I was looking for a little bit of writing craft, marketing sort of information. And normally we like to talk about a book, but this time I just thought we would go for a short and quick. Mm-hmm. And I found a fantastic post, um, on an author's, uh, on an author's blog, actually, uh, Massimo Marino, mm-hmm. a scientist envisioning science fiction is his tagline. So it's not the kind of place I would normally find <laughs> myself, but 
This particular article is um, advice from a former book publicist Mm. um, and it's an interview with Jane Heller who is an author and who also worked in book publicity for a publisher for a long time with a lot of big-time authors. She was a publicist for Erica Jong, Mary Higgins Clark, mm-hmm. Judy Bloom, and Danielle Steele. Now, if those la- if anybody knows how to get out into the market, it's those ladies. Mm-hmm. So she um, had – it's quite an interesting little article where he obviously just asked her a whole lot of questions, talks about common misconceptions that authors have about publicity, what a book publicist from a publishing house can actually do for you and what you probably are going to need to do for yourself even if you are published with a traditional publisher as opposed to self-publishing. And I just think it's really worth reading because I think a lot of people do have, you know, an idea that if they are going to publish with a traditional publisher that, you know, they're going to be on the Today Show Mm. and they're going to be talking to, you know, Oprah. Mm. <laughs> Not that she talks much anymore, but you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, it's worth having a look at what, what you're actually going to receive, like what, what's possible and what's what, not. What do you think was some of the more interesting points from that article? I think the more interesting, well, one of the most interesting points I think for authors of fiction is that they have to be realistic about their expectations. And if they want publicity, they need to find a nonfiction hook within their book. So in the sense that if you – like, for example, great example was one of our previous um, interview writers in residence interviews, which was Mm. Gabrielle Tozer. Mm. Now, that particular book, The Intern, it's fiction, but she has an amazing bit of um, publicity-worthy angle in there, which is the fact that she has been an intern, she works in magazines. So there's stuff to talk to her about that is not just about the book per se – we bring the book in on a regular basis, but there's, you know, like what's it like to be an intern on a magazine? Well, if anybody knows, Gabrielle does. Um, and that the result of that, I think, can be seen in the fact that she was, you know, everywhere when that book came out. And it's because there was something to talk about. Um, often nonfiction books are much easier, easier to publicise because you have an expert sitting there waiting um, to discuss things with. I know when we did, um, when Kate Sykes and I bought out Career Mums a couple mm. of years ago, mm. we got quite a lot of publicity around that book because it was about working mums, how to get back into work. And that's that sort of topic is never going to die. Mm. We give, um, we were able to offer, you know, expert opinion and we, we brought it out in January when everyone's going back to work. Voila, mm. there you go. Mm. Um, so I think that that's the kind of thing that fiction authors need to think about. And it's the sort of thing of like, why did you write the book? Where did the idea come from? What yeah. is there in that book that is a little bit different to what everyone else is doing? That's a great That's a great gem, actually, the nonfiction angle within the fiction book. That's a great gem. It is a great gem. Um, and it's worth reading the article. Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. So yep. that's advice from a former book publicist. But I just thought I'd chime in with some – I don't know why I'm feeling a bit ratty today. But, um, oh, I she goes I'd, again. The soapbox <laughs> is out again. chime in for some advice for some book publicists. Um, ah, okay. Now, I have to say that I, I deal with a lot of book publicists. I think they're adorable. I think they're wonderful, you know. But there's always a couple of outliers here and there. <laughs> um, and, that I, and it's like the 80-20 rule. 80% are just the most – amazing professional you know wonderful people that who could walk the earth but then there are the ones where you email them you know to arrange an interview with an author or whatever and you know I've been doing this for many years especially as a journalist and you get an email back that says oh I'm busy at the Sydney Writers Festival for the second half of May I will (laughs) reply to your email in June 
And my advice, if you're going to put that in your autoresponder, first of all, get a smartphone. It is not that hard. <laughs> and if you're a publicist at a festival, chances are somebody's actually trying to get onto you because of an author that you're representing at the festival. Just yeah. thought I would throw that in. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> goes the soapbox. Okay. So maybe we should move on. Who is our writer in residence this week? Our writer in residence this week, well, you know, along, speaking along the lines of nonfiction, is actually Kristen Hammond, and she's a senior commissioning editor at John Wiley and Sons. She specialises in nonfiction, and we had a very, very good chat about what makes her look at a nonfiction idea, how to put a nonfiction proposal together, um, and lots of really, really interesting and useful tips. So I think, um, uh, well, we put it this way, I was pretty happy with this interview, so I hope our listeners will be as well. Kristen Hammond is the Senior Commissioning Editor in the area of Professional Development, Business, Finance and Accounting Books for John Wiley & Sons Australia. Today we're going to have a little chat about what's involved in a non-fiction book proposal and, perhaps more importantly, how to get it over the line. So hi, Kristen. Hi, Alison. Thanks for having me on today. Always a pleasure. So firstly, let's talk a little bit about exactly what you do, what your role is. What is a Senior Commissioning Editor? Um, okay, I would liken my role, I'll tell you the details in a second, but I would liken my role to three things. One, sometimes I feel a little bit like a professional gambler. Um, and the second and third, sometimes I feel like a carrot and sometimes I feel like the stick. So that's, <laughs> okay, sort of, that's a very interesting but, job description. It is, isn't it? Professional gambler, carrot, stick. So let me just put some context behind that. So my role um, is to acquire books or products for Wiley to publish, um, and I do that in the business genre. And so acquiring means that I am um, looking for ideas or reviewing unsolicited or checking out potential authors, um, getting to understand the market, um, what people are looking for and what they want, um, and then approaching people and chatting to them and developing ideas with them and um, working that up into a book, contracting, um, and then often working in the space of um, positioning a book, doing the cover designs, working with marketing and publicity um, to position the book for the market and get them understanding what it is that the author um, has created and how we can best take that to market um, and sell that. So um, some days... Um, a proposal can be a bit of a professional gamble, so I weigh everything up and go, okay, I think I've mitigated the risk here, let's go with this one. Um, some days I'm the carrot, so I'm the, oh, you're almost finished the manuscript and think how good that will feel, and other days I'm the stick, where it's, um, hmm, you haven't submitted, you're late, um, this is a poor manuscript, um, we need to do these things, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, so there's... It, it's varied and it's really great. I enjoy it and I love the people that I work with, really um, interesting authors and great ideas and I feel um, hooked into what's happening in the business world, which is a great feeling. So. so that, I mean, that sounds to me like, A, as you say, incredibly varied, but also B, incredibly busy. Like how many books are you actually managing at any one time or how many projects? Uh, it can be up to about, uh, in a sort of calendar year, I, I could do up to about 20 projects. Um, so that's projects through to publication. Um, obviously, there's a lot that fall off um, along the way. 
Um, and I also manage a team of staff here. So, um, yeah, it does keep me busy. Um, so maybe for every 20 books that get proposed, there'd be, I don't know, maybe three or four that we look at and go, mm, no, next. Or um, And then often it's um, starting a conversation with someone and knowing that you're just going to have the initial conversation now, but something might come from it in two years' time. Okay. So, Hmm. So with nonfiction, like with your sort of area, I mean, is there a slush pile? Do people sort of randomly send you in ideas and things like that? Like is there a big stack of possibilities at the end of your desk? Uh, there's not a big stack. Um, there's a lot of possibilities on my desk, but they might be things that I've gone out and researched and looked into. Um, in terms of unsolicited or a slush pile, we do get them. Um, and we probably, on a percentage basis compared to other publishing companies, publish a, a much higher um, percentage of those books than other companies. And I think that's because the list that I work on and the manuscripts that come to me, many people have often done their homework and they understand exactly what it is that we publish um, and what we're looking for. So we get quite tailored um, unsolicited manuscripts that work well with what we are publishing. So... Uh, we've certainly, you know, maybe out of the sort of 40 or so books that we publish every year, we might do one or two that come from the unsolicited pile, which I think is quite large. So, I was going to say, that's not a bad percentage at all. Yeah. Um, um, and a lot of the other ones are, pr- are probably, uh, you know, not too for- short of the mark. Um, we do occasionally get somebody who will send us a fiction book or um, a cookbook and it's like, well, we can reject that straight out. So, yeah. So what 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 is it that makes you that makes you look at a proposal or a manuscript and think, yes, I'm going to follow this up? Like, what is it that's in that proposal or in that manuscript that makes you go, yes, this is worth my time and attention, as opposed to, no, I'm not even going to read past the first page. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to say there, Alison, is that it's no one thing. Okay. So if anybody's okay. out there, any of your listeners are out there looking for the silver bullet, I can't give it to you. Oh, uh, I know, sorry. <laughs> and look, if I knew what the silver bullet was, I'd be looking for that all the time. Right. So I, I think for um, most uh, of the proposals that we receive, it can be a combination. So I, I think we've got to give everything due care and attention. Um, and often what we get in a proposal, you'd need to follow it up with a conversation to then be able to really delve into areas and work out, um, you know, what it is that that you've got there, whether there is a diamond in the rough. Um, I think uh, there's probably two key things I'm, I'm looking for. Um, one is uh, the author and their platform. So I very much view publishing as a partnership between the publisher and the author, and in the non-fiction space that I work in, um, I want to be able to see that the author's already engaging with a community, with his audience, and has traction with that audience. Um, we'll just call them all he's for the moment, by the way. Sorry, okay. ladies. Yep. Um, but I, I want to see that they've got that um, engagement with that audience. And so I want that to come out in the proposal. And I want to see, too, that what they're writing about is what the audience is wanting so um, in the case of if somebody's out there and they're doing some speaking engagements and they speak on three main topics and two of them are really popular and one of them's not and this book is about the one that's not popular, then I'm not particularly interested in that. I want to see the thing that the audience already wants. I want to understand, I want to see that the audience is hungry for this material. 
and um, I want to see that the author's responding to that. And then in terms of their platform um, and their market reach and their um, audience and their community that they have, that can be a combination of things. So it could be a great presence on social media and huge number of followers, um, but I want to be able to... I want to be able to get onto social media and see that their followers are engaged. I don't just want to see 35,000 Twitter followers, but nobody's doing anything on that feed. Right. Um, it could be speaking engagements. You know, they might be keynoting and speaking to 20,000 people a year. It could be consulting to big companies. It could be a combination of two or three of those. Um, and I, I guess, too, then I also want to see that there's an idea there that beyond the author's audience, that I think there's a broader business audience that would be interested in that topic as well. Okay, so two questions then for you. Are, are most of the people that you're publishing um, sort of business people who can write as opposed to writers who've had, an, who've had a business idea? That was one question. And the second question is you mentioned earlier that you are often researching your own ideas and things like that. Where are you looking for those? Are you going to these conferences and seeing these speakers and thinking, oh, that person could be great for a book? Or are you reading blogs? Or how are you finding the kind of talent that you're looking for? Okay, let's take the second question first because okay. I can remember what you said then. <laughs> I'll get you to ask the first question again. Um, definitely going out to conferences, going um, trawling through social media, looking at hashtags, um, looking on the web, uh, talking to companies, talking to existing authors about who they're seeing out there on the circuit possibly, um, reading the business media, all those places. So um, uh, I get ideas from all of those, talking to colleagues around the globe about what they're seeing that's happening in their market that maybe has not started happening here, that that may change and, and those sorts of things. So um, ideas I think come from a lot of places and sometimes uh, it's not an idea that you see initially, but you know when you've been looking at lots of different sources for a while, you begin to sort of synthesise what that idea is. So you know, I'm hearing a lot about ethical leadership. Um, you know, so I'm beginning to sort of see a volume of of um, interest in a topic, sort of thing. So mm -hmm. that's kind of where I get ideas from. So sometimes the idea is. Sometimes the idea is the author. Sometimes the idea is the topic. Um, so wherever the winds may blow me sort of thing. <laughs> okay. All right. So the, And then the first question I asked you, and I had to write this down so I remembered it, is <coughs> are, are your authors, you know, are they business people who can write or oh, are they authors with a business who come to you with a business idea or who you um, kind of decide are the, are the best people to write this particular book? Um, I think it's a combination. I think I don't necessarily... I think writing is a skill that some people are good at and some people aren't. Yeah. Um, I think what makes those some people that aren't easier to work with is if they can identify that themselves as well. Yes. Um, oh, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a bit difficult sometimes working with authors who think they've written something really fantastic and are, um, are not particularly open to feedback or... Um, editing and those sorts of things. So that can be quite difficult, but um, I, I think it's a combination. Some people are naturally gifted. I've had authors who've sat down and written a manuscript in 21 days um, and just literally you know, put themselves in an office and written it straight out. I've had other authors who've taken two or three years to write something 
Um, so that could depend on their other business commitments um, or life commitments for that matter. So I think some people need some guidance in the beginning. So they may have got a sample chapter and a table of contents together, but they might need some development advice and some more um, big picture advice on those sample chapters so that they can then roll that out to the rest of the manuscript. So I, I think it can vary. I think authors who are open to the process and willing to trust a publisher's judgment about um, crafting a manuscript and making it the best it can possibly be, I think they're great authors to work with. So okay. I think people who can be a bit intransigent um, and inflexible, that can make life a bit difficult. So, Okay, so can you remember, like, I mean, obviously you've been doing this for a long time, but can you remember off the top of your head one of the strongest proposals that you ever received and, you know, why it worked for you and how the ensuing book turned out? Um, can I think of a really great proposal? I can think of one that came with a huge block of Kit Kat. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> chocolate never hurts, I can honestly say. Um <laughs> And look, I, I think, you know, it goes in fits and starts where you get lots of sort of gimmicks that come along with it. And sometimes they're fun. And if you open it at the right time of the day or it's been a crappy week, then, you know, chocolate's at least going to have me reading it. So um, that's a good start. Yeah. Um, but that, that said, that's never going to get anything over the line, but at least might make me open the envelope. <laughs> um Oh, you're so easily bought, aren't you? I know, I know, I know. So, um, I'm very fond of Freddo's. To anybody who's out there, strawberry, thanks. Um, no, I can't, I can't think of a, a single proposal that's um, been particularly strong. I, I think I'm often taken when somebody is a great writer, um, and you can see that in an initial proposal um, and an initial sample chapter. Um, Although to often I, the, in, in terms of the process and the books that I'm most proud of, it's, it's probably those ones where I've actually really worked with an author on developing the manuscript and developing the table of contents. Yeah. So um, you know, I, I guess over time some things stand out for some reason. So, yeah, look, it's great to get a great proposal and a beautiful writer, but sometimes it's more satisfying to work really closely with an author on something and help them develop it and craft it and and make it the best it can be. So. See, I find it interesting too, and I think a lot of our readers would find it interesting, that you are willing to put in as much work as you obviously do because I think that there's an idea that, um, you know, it's got to be perfect or you're not even going to look at it, but you're actually saying that the idea is is almost as important as the execution in those initial stages. I think so, and I think sometimes part of my skill and my experience is being able to see the wood for the trees or the diamond in the rough or whatever other cliche I can throw out, is to be able to look at that and go, okay, here we are, we've got a great author and we've got a great idea that she can't write for anything. Um, and that may be my working with them more or that may be my suggesting to them, have you ever thought about getting a writer to work with you? Mm. Um, and in the space where I work, Often the people I work with are so busy that a ghostwriter or somebody to help them collect their thoughts or pull it all together is, is a godsend for them. So they, they might not necessarily have the time to be able to pull that all together. Yeah. And I think some people will maybe look at ghostwriting and go, well, I didn't actually write it. 
But in the space where I work with, these are these people's business ideas. This is their intellectual property. So the fact that they can't put it in writing in a form that's fantastic doesn't mean that the ideas aren't fantastic and the, the hard work and that they've put into those ideas and crafting those ideas is not great. So, you know, they just get help with somebody to, to help them write it. So I, I don't see ghostwriting as, you know, the soft option as no. such. So um, to me, it's often a, a sensible option. Um, and yeah, I think whatever level, if you, if you feel you can, if, if I feel I can add value, then whatever it takes to help get that over the line. And um, if an author's open to that process, then even better. Okay, so. terrific. All right, so um, so here's a million-dollar question for you then, another one. Jeez, I'm good at these, aren't I? Um, <laughs> are there particular books that you're looking for right now? Like are there particular areas that you'd like to cover or is there anything in anything that you're, you know, any cherry out there that you're looking for that you haven't managed to pick yet? Um. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, and that's not to say that there's not ideas out there. I just think uh, I'm often looking for a whole package. So sometimes the ideas might be out there, but I'm not getting, like I'm getting the ideas from people, but they're not the right author. So maybe, you know, I take that idea somewhere else. Or sometimes it's the right author, but they're coming with the wrong book. Um, so I think too, part of what we're doing, you know, we're very much driven um by who the author is and what their community is. And if they've already got an established community that are really interested in hearing from this author on this topic, then often that's enough to get it over the line. So it might not have the broader business appeal, but this author's got such a strong um, market presence that we've got a great launching pad that I can do that. So it might not be necessarily the topic of the day, but it's what this author is talking to people about and for his community, when he's engaged with them, it is the topic of the day. Right. So, um, yeah, but having said that, you know, I'm seeing a lot of obviously um, digital, social media, those sorts of things, we're always looking in that space. Um, I think people are always looking for information about leadership and management techniques um, and new ideas to put together and com- combining, you know, maybe those topics together. So in the sense of, um, you know, how do I lead in a digital age or manage a workforce in, you know, in this sort of environment and what does it mean for my business on social media and those sorts of things. So we publish um, on the list that I publish for such a broad gamut of topics, you know, whether it be from sort of entry-level career graduate up to CEO level. So um, it can be very varied. So there's no sort of one topic that I'm looking for. I'm trying to look for things that will suit all sorts of market sectors and, and interests. So Okay. Yeah. All right. So then just to, to sum it all up and finish this off, um, three top tips for authors who want to get published in this area. I think know your audience and know what they're asking of you, know what they want to hear from you, um, know how to reach them, um, be engaged with them. Um, so there's no point having 35,000 Twitter followers if you're not saying anything to them. Um, I think there's definitely something um, karmic about, you know, put your content out there, it'll come back to you tenfold, those sorts of things. So. Um, so I think there's a, a big thing to be said there about audience in terms of tips. Um, in terms of presenting to a publisher, I think 
um, understand that the publisher does this every day, publishes books, looks at the market, those sorts of things. So I, I would respect and trust the publisher's judgment. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say go blindly, um, you know, ask around, ask the publisher questions, those sorts of things. But I think there's a kind of experience there um, that is to be drawn upon and used and leveraged, you know, for each author. Um, so I think that's a really valuable thing to sort of come to the process with. I think um, sometimes people come with very set ideas about what they want, um, and that's great, but maybe for those people, self-publishing is a better option or, um, you know, that may work better for them. There may be other options. They may want to put their information out there on a blog. So um, that's probably my two top tips. And then the third one I would say would be um, planning. So... You know, plan your approach, plan your manuscript, plan your table of contents. I think the more thinking that you put into something, the better. And I think for many of the people in the space that I work with, they've got a lot of intellectual property as well. So, you know, a blank page might may look scary to start with, but actually when they just even start cutting and pasting from their existing IP, they might come up with 20,000 words and they haven't even really shaped a manuscript or thought about how it might work. So... Um, you know, plan and draw upon your existing resources. Okay. All great advice, but which has brought me to one last question that was on top of the last question. Um, okay. You you mentioned, um, you know, putting your content out there and it will come back to you tenfold and uh, et cetera and people with blogs and stuff like that. One question that we do get asked a lot is how much should I put on my blog because um, will publishers still be interested if, if it's all already out there? Um is that a question that, that people need to be thinking about, do you think? I, I think so. I think you need to be smart about your content. So I think there, and this this depends on whether your business is just a blog or is your um, business a blog and consulting and all those other, um, you know, keynotes and, and other activities. So if your business is just your blog and you're putting everything on your blog, um, then that may be difficult to then go and get a, a book from that existing material. You may be able to talk about something, you know, from that or parallel to that. If your business, though, is a blog and keynote and consulting and those sorts of things and you're putting a bit of your content here and a bit of your content there, then I think there's opportunities to pull that together and present it as a single source of IP. So... Um, because I, book, I think it is. a book is not just a string of blog posts, you know, pulled together, is oh, it? Oh no, it, yeah, and that's something I think that people, you know, who may be thinking along these lines, need to also consider that the narrative process, even of a non-fiction book, is quite different to a whole string of blog posts put together. Well, I think there are books that are strings of blog posts, and when they openly tell you that it's a string of blog posts, then that's all good and well, and your reader, you know, beware and goes in in full knowledge. I think there's um, books that are a string of blog posts that they try and cover it up as a book and that it feels you'll know that it's a series of blog posts and you won't be happy reading it, I don't think. So okay. I think then people want to um, authors to then curate those blog posts and pull out the themes and put them together in sort of new ways and maybe offer some new thinking. So I, I think you can certainly take your blog posts and use them as a starting point, but it's just a starting point. Okay. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it and your insights into all this. It's um, I've learned a few things and I've even written nonfiction books myself, so that's good to know. Um, so thanks very much. And uh, we will uh, put the John Wiley uh, website into the show notes. If people want to send you a book proposal or an idea or start a conversation with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Um, they can just send me an email direct to Kay Hammond, K-H-A-M-M-O-N-D, at wiley.com. Okay. And, um, yeah, I can take it from there. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Thanks again, Kristen, and uh, we shall look forward to seeing what you come up with next. Excellent, Alison. Thanks for your time today, and um, thanks um, to your listeners for listening in, and um, thanks to, for your podcast. I very much enjoy listening to it as well. Thank you. That was a great interview with Kristen. Thanks for doing that, Al. I mean, oh, it was great. And just as a disclaimer, I actually worked with Kristen on my book, yes. um, Credit Card Stress Busters, several years ago, and I found her fantastic. It was such a great, supportive. I mean, you can tell, can't you? She's really interested and mm. she's really, really supportive of her authors, mm. which I think is great. Because we've both been published by Wiley, so it's kind of interesting to actually hear what the, what your publishers has to say in, with questions that you probably wouldn't normally ask in your normal publisher-author relationship. No, um, and I think the other interesting thing about that particular interview is the fact that, you know, and I, and I think this, this possibly shocks people as well, is that she's actively looking for she, – she actively is looking for ideas and yeah. then will search out a writer for them. Mm. So she's not just sitting there waiting for proposals to come to her. Mm. She is looking for what's going on. Which, like, she's so immersed in the whole thing. What's going on? What do we need to put a book out about right now? And who's the best person to write that book? Yeah. And I think that that's, um, that's an interesting thing. And I think that that goes to our conversations that, and I know that you like to have a regular soapbox about this, <laughs> is um, this business of author platforms and how important it is for nonfiction authors to, uh, or, or even, even for business people. Like if you're out there and you're doing stuff and you're speaking regularly, you know, get that website happening because people are looking for you. Mm-mm, absolutely. So what's happening in the world of blogging? Oh, the world of blogging. Well, I found an interesting article on ProBlogger. Now, we do love a bit of ProBlogger. Yeah. I think, you know, there's often some fantastic um, articles there and Darren works very, very hard to keep that content, you know, fresh and new and useful, which I think yeah. is also awesome. We love you, Darren. Are you listening? Love you, Darren. <laughs> um, so the, um, the article was about finding readers and it was a guest post Um by DJ from Steamfeed, and it's about um, finding readers. And it's something, of course, that many, many bloggers uh, are always worried, you know, how do, where do I get them from? How do I find them? What goes on? And it's all about writing so that you're, you find your readers <clears throat> and grow your blog one reader at a time. Yeah. And DJ even says, my guess is a portion of you will not like this article which I find really interesting because, you know, a lot of people, they, they it's the instant gratification thing, you know, like if we've got to work really hard to find readers, then we don't really want them, do we? It's, it's, if we look at other people who are building their Twitter, their Twitter um, following and their Facebook following and their blog following by like thousands a day. And we think I want to be that. Why can't I do that? Mm. Um, and what we, I think, forget is that those people started with no readers as well. Absolutely. And they found, you know, they may be further along the journey than you are or, or all that sort of stuff. And so they talk here about, about implementing concepts that will get you readers um, one at a time but slow and steady growth. And I think it's a really worthwhile article for bloggers to read. And, of course, 
you know, for most people who've been doing blogging for a while, mm. it's not necessarily going to be new stuff, mm. but it's stuff that some I think needs to be reiterated. It's talking about, you know, building relationships yep. rather than just, you know, throwing tweets at people. It's about <laughs> consistency, which is, you know, absolutely essential. It's about making sure you have great images, that kind mm. of stuff. You know, like, as I said, it may not be um, necessarily earth-shatteringly new stuff, but it's really, really important stuff. Mm. And, you know, like, I, what do you think about that? I think One people, yeah, it, it's it's not just I'm going to put out great content and pe- the, build it and they will come. You actually need a strategy behind it, a very clear strategy. And I think that that's one of the things that the post is, you know, espousing. But also um, it's something that we get asked all the time and that's why we have a seminar called How to Get More Blog Readers. And that's in Melbourne, but you will, yes, it will come to other cities. <laughs> it's currently in Melbourne. Um, and it's run by Nicole Avery, who has a very successful blog, Planning with Kids. Um, who we also love. Who we also love. Hi, Hi Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's, uh, it, you know, she's got like a billion gazillion readers. Not quite a billion gazillion, but I just oh, don't have the number at hand. It's extremely high. Yeah. And um, she is amazing in mapping out this blueprint on the exact steps you need to take and the order in which to take them um, if you want to, you know, get more blog readers. But, you know, we'll put that link in the show notes as well. But it's about strategy, 100% strategy, not just your creative genius. Right. I think but, I um, need to do that. <laughs> when's it coming to sydney <laughs> and another question we get um a lot uh not about the world of blogging but particularly those people who are writing you know um long stories whether that's an epic fantasy whether that's a complicated life story or whether that's just a you know a novel that's got quite a few pieces to the puzzle um is how to kind of arrange it um and you came across an interesting app app this week, I which is did come across, which is very unusual for me to come across the app because, yeah. you know, it's much more your territory than mine. But I was um, in, um, I have a community that I'm part of in um, Google Plus. It's called the Writers Discussion Group. It's a massive, massive community. I think there's about 19 or 20,000 um, members of that community now. Wow. Um, but it's it's a really interesting place to go. They, there's a lot of discussion in there about self-publishing, um, which is something that um, obviously, you know, many, many authors are looking at but it's also just a really interesting place for people sharing tips and ideas and somebody um asked a question they're writing a mystery novel Mm -hmm. and they were really struggling with how to keep it in how to keep the timeline in in sort of in order and where they were and how do people keep track of this stuff Mm -hmm. and a recommendation from one of the members of the group was an app called eon timeline um which i had a look at and looks really really interesting so it basically is allows you to organize your your work into a series of events and you can then move those around, change things. You can model the relationships between events and people. If you're trying to keep an idea of um, a track of how old somebody is as the book progresses, mm. Eon can calculate that for you. How much time has passed since your books, you know, see, um, since the from the beginning of your book to the, to sort of the end. If you if you've got everything's got to happen within a twelve month period, for example, you know, where are you up to by the time you get halfway through the book is important. So. It's um, it's just it looks like a very very interesting app, and mm. I think that um, um, given the recommendation from that particular group, I think definitely worth having a look at if if it's something that you're struggling with. 
Wow, it looks like a project management tool with Gantt charts and you well, know, you calendars. Know, I, have, I know, but I, I, I also think like sometimes you know people need to realise that when you're approaching a, a novel, mm-hmm. and we're talking about a full length novel here of eighty to hundred thousand words, yep. it is a major project. Yeah, and you know if you're struggling to sort of manage where people are at any given time. I mean, we've talked before about people who use spreadsheets and yep. different ways of organising this stuff, and we will talk about um, about that more mm. in a f- in future episodes but this is just one tool there are a lot of tools out there mm. this is one tool that people can look at to just to keep track of that timeline which can be very very difficult cool so um many of you have already started emailing us uh so thank you for that it's a podcast at writerscenter.com.au and um we hope to answer your queries wherever possible on the podcast and we got an, a question from nikki fisher saying can you share any tricks or tips for coming up with a sharp saleable angle i often have story ideas but i get stuck sharpening the angle and matching it to the publication i want to approach uh, so Nikki is referring to, you know, magazine and newspaper type articles, not books and, um, coming up with a sharp saleable angle for that. What's your advice, Alison? I thought, yeah, I found this a really interesting question because I think, um, you know, the more you do this, the easier it becomes. So my first suggestion would be to practice. And the other thing that I often suggest when I'm doing, uh, when I'm sort of working with students in our magazine and newspaper writing course that I teach online is I... I ask them to 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 analyze a publication to to choose a story and to try and work out exactly where they think the angle came from. How did the author come up with that particular thing? Because I think that that's important. But myself personally, so often I, at the angle for a story will be I will have I will be struck by an idea from a conversation that I am having or from a newspaper article that I see news news is always a good angle mm-hmm. um, if you see something happening like if a celebrity is doing something um, then there's probably an angle in it somewhere for one of the glossy magazines or for one of the newspapers um, so I'm I'm always reading and I'm always um, you know talking to people what sorts of things are people talking about but then it comes down to the publication in question, who reads that publication and what would they want to know about mm. this particular story? Um, so for me, it's like, you know, what what an 18-year-old girl wants to know about motherhood or managing motherhood is quite different to what a 40-year-old woman wants to know about motherhood or managing motherhood or whatever. So mm. it comes down to what where are these people at in their stage of life and what do they want to know about this particular subject? And mm. I I think it's a real it's a real skill in the sense that there are a lot of stories out there that magazines will run every single year mm. around around like the I noticed that Mother's Day we had a whole range of yep. the guilt of motherhood stories yep. which is always you know every year we do that so um, it's a matter of coming up with some new way of presenting that story for that particular readership. Mm-hmm. What about you? What are your thoughts? I think the biggest mistake that people make is they come up with a subject or topic area as opposed to an angle. So Absolutely. they might think, oh, I want to talk about online shopping or yeah. I want to talk about fashion. And yeah. that they're, they're just subjects yeah. or topics. Yeah. Um, but you really need to narrow it down much more into a very clear angle that it's going to be ideal for that publication. Yeah. So rather than I want to talk about online shopping, it might be I want to talk about, you know, the increase in um, in Australians embracing online shopping and the impact it's then having on rag traders locally. 
You know, yeah. that's an angle as opposed yeah. to a subject. And yeah. often an angle might be tied to a trend or it might be tied to, as you said, like a, a, an event like Mother's Day or yeah. a season because yeah. the flu might be around in winter and it might be an angle on how to avoid children's flu, you know, flu in children. If or they even go online to school. shopping because people who are sick and sitting at home all the time are shopping more <laughs> online yes. than they are going out. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. And I think that um, one, a good test, I often tell people to do the barbecue test where you're at your Sunday barbecue and you say, you know, I'm thinking of writing a story on X. And if people say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. That means your idea sucks bad because you actually (laughs) want them to say, Oh my God, yes, that is so true. I see that all the time. Yeah. So it's not a scientific method, but it's certainly a worthwhile one because you need it to resonate with people if you want the idea to have legs. So it's something that obviously we, te- we teach in the magazine writing course at the Australian Writers' Centre and, you know, people have great success when they follow it because it's all very – it is formulaic. It is step-by-step, step, you know. Um, but uh, it's a really good question. So if, if any of you have a question, please do email us at um, podcast at writercenter.com.au. And we would also be really grateful if um, you could leave us a review on iTunes. We're so, you know, really appreciate your feedback. And, um, uh, you know, we, we it's, it's so great that we're still in the top ranking podcast on iTunes and that's all uh, because of your support. So, um, but what are you up to? We come to the end of our podcast, Al. How we did that happen? We... Ever, really? <laughs> We could just sit here all day. <laughs> what are you up to this week? What am I up to this week? I am, I, yeah, I'm editing because that's where I'm up to, you know. Like I've I've submitted the um, the manuscript for book two of my series and I'm, wa- well, I'm waiting. You know what? We really need to talk at some point about the importance of learning patience as a writer oh. because you honestly spend so much of your life waiting for things to happen. Yeah. It's not funny. Um, so I'm waiting to hear back that that's all fine and I am editing um, book one and that's pretty much what I'll be doing for the next week. And Great. you? Uh, let's see, what am I doing? Lots of things, but tonight I'm catching up with a bunch of friends and one of them, we're doing a bit of an experiment actually. Um, she is, uh, she runs the Australian Business Women's Network and she has a, she does a lot of work with authors. And, um, on the 29th of May, uh, Susie Daphnis and I are going to be running her first ever tweet chat with a, with a book, with an, with an author. So, um, I'm the author. (laughs) (laughs) for for my book power stories and um so yeah Susie and I are running we'll be running a tweet chat and uh we're going to see how that goes so we'll put the link that link in the show notes as well but um you can have your own hashtag well it may be I just have to summarize everything in 140 characters that'll be fine you can do that but if we want to find you Alison where do we find you uh, you will find me at alisontate.com. I'm also, and I'm at valeriecoo.com. And you can find all the show notes to this podcast at writercenter.com.au slash podcast. And until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. 